This episode of Industry Focus is supported by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today over at netsuite.com. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Friday, August 9th, and we're talking about the e-commerce leader of Africa, I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's Jason Hall on Skype. Jason, how's it going, man? Great. It's you know, it's funny. After you know, working together for like six years now, I think this is the first time we've ever done a podcast together. I know, and I'm thrilled because I've heard such wonderful things from Nick Seipel in the shows that he has done with you. He's spoken so highly about having you on as a guest. You know, sometimes you have people that don't give it back. Sometimes you're kind of throwing questions out there. You're not getting a whole lot back. That's not the case with you, Jason. You know, I like to be engaged. What can I say? I think I think the reason Nick really likes to have me on there is, you know, he's he's an Alabama guy, and I'm a Georgia guy, and I think he likes to lord it over me a little bit that his Crimson Tide seems to have my Bulldogs number. So, yeah, it's nice to not have to take that beating. So, well, yeah. well, this is going to be a breeze of a show for you because Thank my you. college football program was so strong that they disbanded the team my freshman year. <laughs> <laughs> Northeastern University, Boston. We're a hockey town. You know, we're not really yeah, meant to play football over there. No, not so much. <laughs> not so much. Good. Well, yeah, that's one less thing for me to worry about. So there we go. There we yeah. Go. Well, the, the reason I'm having you on, I know you normally talk energy and industrials, Jason. Um, we are talking about a company that maybe has come across the radar of some fools. I know it's gotten some discussion on market foolery, but it's a business that you follow quite a bit, and it's coming from a part of the world that we generally don't discuss all that often. Yes, Jumia Technologies. Yeah, and and so this is what a lot of people are kind of referring to as the Amazon or Mercado Libre of Africa. And it's basically the largest e-commerce player there. They have a lot of elements of their business that are super similar to Mercado and Amazon. I guess we can kind of detail that out. But e-commerce, logistics, payments, they're starting to follow a blueprint that these businesses have laid out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's 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 interesting because if you think about, you know, the the future of of, of Africa, this is this is a very young country with a fast growing urban middle class population. Uh, it's you know a, what 1.2, 1.3 billion people in the country in the in the continents. Uh, Jumia operates in 14 countries that have a little over half of the the the, the continent's population. Uh, but the, the company says that they represent those those com- those countries represent like three quarters of Africa's GDP, and almost eighty percent of the the the, um, the continent's internet users are in one of those fourteen countries. So it's really working to establish itself where you know the consumers in Africa currently are. One of the things that a lot of people that listen to the show and read Fool.com articles might not realize is we are not all here in Alexandria, Virginia, or the D.C., Northern Virginia area. Um, We have writers all over the world. We have folks that are looking for stocks all over the world. And it was one of those writers who kind of first put this stock on our radar. Right, right. Yeah, Tyler Tyler Crow, um, for those of you who have, who who listened to the, the Energy and Industrials Thursday show and 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 read a lot of stuff about energy and industrials. Tyler's been a longtime contributor in that in that to that segment. Um, but he actually lives in Africa. 
Um, he lived in Malawi for a few years. Malawi is one of the poorest countries uh, in Africa, and he now lives in uh, the, the Gambia. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think you're um, right. I think yeah, I think I think I got managed to get that one. <laughs> um, and he explained that one of the challenges in much of Africa is simply availability of goods. Very limited choices. He described it to me uh, in, a, in a conversation is basically whatever the shopkeeper's cousin in another country could get into the shipping container is is what people have you know access to buy. Um, so something like you, know, you think about here in, in in the states, you think about really in in most of the developed world, you know, with e-commerce, we can pretty much buy whatever we want, whenever we want, and we can have it you know show up at our doorstep within a few days. Um, and with Africa's demographics trending really young and being very internet savvy and and mobile internet savvy, and electronic payments starting to be more common and a more comfortable way to, way to buy things. There's a really, really strong opportunity if uh, Jamia can can establish a foothold and build some scale to just be a tremendously successful business. Yeah, I, I have to always take that step back when we talk about e-commerce and remind myself that even in the United States, I think e-commerce is about less than 20% of overall retail. You talk about some of the other developing countries out there where the logistics aren't as built out, um, and actually getting those products from online orders to people's houses, it's just a little bit tougher, even less the case. And some of that is because it's less connected. We mentioned that 1.2 billion figure before. I think only about 450 million people in Africa are active internet users. So, right. this is a business that enjoys a couple different major growth levers. One, the growth of e-commerce. Two, this wave of people gaining access to the internet. Let me let me give some context for, for how small Jamia is right now versus, versus the size of the potential opportunity just today. Uh, according to a uh, company's June presentation, uh, the the total consumer and business to business spending in Africa is you know around four trillion dollars four trillion with a T, so if we take you know three quarters of that uh, and spread it across the countries that it does business in that Jamia does business in that's three trillion dollars worth of commerce right that's that's a tremendous amount of amount of money last quarter I think there was something like sixteen million euros. And business that the company that the company did on its e-commerce platform again, 16 million. That's just one quarter, of course, but compared to around three trillion per year, I mean, this is just a tiny sliver, right? I mean, it's this is how early it is in Africa uh, for really one of the bigger e-commerce players in the in the in the country or in the in the continent. And if you look at the books for this business, I think it has a lot of the hallmarks of a high growth early stage story. Um, they put up $130 million in revenue in 2018. And just as a note, the company is headquartered in Germany, and they state their financials in Euro. So, unless stated otherwise, all figures that would be dollars are actually Euro. Uh, the company put up $130 million in revenue in 2018, which was good for 38% growth over the previous year. But, huge operating losses. Uh, the company lost nearly €170 million Euro on those sales. And you look back at two years of financials that we have access to, the operating losses were larger than the top line for both years. Jason, what's the story there? This is this is simply a, a product of of how early uh, in this business it is. It's it's 
losses are going to continue for for a time to come as the company builds scale. Um, you know, the, the bottom the bottom line is that the company simply does not have enough merchants using its its platform and using its its um, its um, uh, fulfillment services and enough customers buying those products to to cover its its operating costs right now. Um, it's building scale. It's going to continue to have to spend more money than it's going to bring in, and it's it's going to take time. Um, you know, it's 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 not exactly the same. But if you go back to to the early two thousands with Amazon, um, you know, Amazon was generating you know around two hundred million dollars in negative operating cash um, per year. You know, pretty early in its business too. So, I mean, you can't you can't draw a direct line from what Amazon was doing in 2009 to Jumia today and say, "Oh, this is going to make me rich," because the risk is that the company is not going to pull it off. But again, the context is the company has to build that scale, and it's going to have to burn through a ton of cash to build the scale before the business gets to a point where the cash flows are, are going to be sustainable to support just the existing business. What we've seen so far with businesses that have been successful as the de facto e-commerce or payments provider in a region is that it comes with scale. And so, unfortunately, you are stuck with a growth story until you can start to realize the benefits of being number one and having some pretty serious leverage on everything that you've built out. Exactly, and I mean, I think that's why you look at the you look at some of the value traditional valuation metrics, and it trades for. I don't know what it is today. Twenty times or thirty times sales, you know, and you think that's that's insane, right? By by any traditional valuation metric, twenty or thirty times sales is is just an incredibly overvalued stock. But again, it, because of where it is, you kind of have to think about this almost like you know a, a, a um, you know an early stage biotech that hasn't actually had a drug that's passed phase three clinicals and it's available to for prescriptions and actually just start selling and generating revenue. That's where the company is. It's investing in the business and building something that's 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 hopefully going to get to to scale to be to be cash flow positive. The key business metrics here are ones that anyone that follows Mercado or Amazon is going to be familiar with. Uh, we're primarily looking at revenue, of course, but then also uh, gross merchandise volume, as well as the number of sellers and the number of customers on the platform. Right, right. Because again, those are those are metrics that you know within the within the context of of what the company is trying to accomplish are going to demonstrate: is it growing? Is it is it establishing scale? Is is all of that money that it's throwing at building out its infrastructure and its platform is it actually paying off or not? So so we'll con- you know continue to watch that. Obviously, it's a mistake to disregard the cash flow or ignore the the losses because. The company's balance sheet's really important, right? You want to continue to monitor its cash position, look at leverage, um, because it's got to pay for all that, you know. And it, it went public to raise capital to be able to do that, and it has a limited amount of capital that 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 you know we want to see it effectively using and and, and using that capital to to build scale to move closer and closer to 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 being able to live within its own means, so to speak. To put a couple of figures to that, I think last quarter we saw. Roughly 58% year-over-year growth in gross merchandise volume, um, yep. and then we also <laughs> saw them come in at about four million active consumers on the platform. You think about that connected uh, number of <laughs> African citizens. Uh, there, there's a ways to go. I mean, that is a drop in the bucket relative to the number of people who have access to the internet in the continent, and so there's a pretty big green field ahead of them there. Right. I mean, just going from four million to forty million, you know, ten times the number of users, you know, forty million active active shoppers. That's still, 
what is that, about 6%, 7% of, of the population of the countries that it does business in. Uh, it's, I mean, you know, this, so, so again, that's, you start, you start doing the math and you start looking at, you know, the orders of magnitude that, that it could grow and still only be a small part. And maybe that can kind of help you see how there's the opportunity for, for Jamia to really be, you know, again, one of those Mercado Libre or, or Amazon type of investments, you know, if you look out 10 years from now. Yeah, and we've drawn that comparison several times, and I think that that's a compar- comparison that Jumia uh, welcomes. You know, we, they even in their own conference calls and in their own investor presentations stack themselves right next to Mercado Libre, Amazon, and Alibaba. And there's one in particular that I want to hone in on, where they have this table breaking down all four of those businesses and their their various offerings. So you have their e-commerce, logistics, payment fintech, etc. And Jumia plays in a lot of the spaces that these other companies do. But then you also have Amazon in digital entertainment, marketing advertising, cloud, same spaces that Alibaba plays in. And I think that beyond where they currently exist, there's a pretty clear roadmap here in different ways that they could monetize this audience and this group once they get to a larger critical mass. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting, right? Because you start talking about getting to that critical mass, and then it opens up optionality, which is is something that you know, you know, we definitely like, and I, I'm a big fan of when with businesses that have the ability to 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 go in different ways with their capital, depending on you know what might necessarily generate the biggest you know rate of potential return, please the most customers, attract more customers, and that's a really interesting thing to consider. You know, one business that's that's that that uh, Jamia doesn't highlight that I think is actually maybe one of the best current kind of if you think about scale and size comparisons and I'm going to murder this name but it's a Bauzun B O U Z U N the the Chinese uh, e-commerce platform provider and and logistics uh, provider and there's some similarities there in terms of it's it's a little bit smaller it's still getting started um, I think one of the reasons they don't necessarily highlight it is that is that its stock hasn't maybe performed as well as Mercado <laughs> Libre, Amazon or Alibaba uh, in recent in recent history um, but again I think so that's you know you think about it you know these are these are successful businesses uh, also Jimmy is the one that's not cash flow positive all of these other businesses generate you know, positive cash flow and operating profits. So again, it gives you that roadmap, as you've talked about, of 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 the way that, that this business could potentially evolve if management continues to execute. And I think a lot of that stuff will come way down the road. You know, we we talk about Amazon's ad business now as like this wonderful high margin business. It's becoming a threat to Google. It's becoming a threat to Facebook. Digital ad spend's going there. Well, we only started reading headlines about this a couple of years ago, you know. And for how old this business is, it was a fairly mature company that then was able to roll this in because they had the captive audience. I'm not expecting Jumia to hop into these spaces anytime soon, but once you're there and you have the built-out marketplace, like you said, optionality galore. Right. Exactly. All right, we're going to talk about some of the major risks and what we make of the stock on the back half of the show. But before we do, a quick word from our sponsor. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem growing businesses have that keeps them from growing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's just a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources. And that hurts the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. 
With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance and accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash fool. That's netsuite.com slash fool to download your free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits, netsuite.com slash fool. All right, Jason, we could not speak only bullishly about a stock. We got to temper some of the enthusiasm here. And this is a stock in particular, I think, that has had a major hit to it just shortly after going out on the public markets. You know, this is not a company that's been trading for a long time, IPO'd earlier this year. And pretty much immediately after the public offering, there were people out there questioning some of their books. Yeah, it's it's uh, if 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 anyone has, if you're a follower of the fool at all, you're probably familiar with uh, Citroen Research. Andrew left. Uh, it seems like um, a lot of uh, stocks that David Gardner has has recommended over the years have been targeted uh, by Mr. Left uh, as 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 for some reason being overvalued, and uh, he's. He's wanted to bandy around things like fraud, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty regularly in his in his in his uh, reports, and um, he he came after after Jamia pretty hard and uh, and and really early, like in May. You know, I think the stock IPO'd what April, I think it IPO'd. So so within you know less than two months, um, and essentially made made claims that the company was was. Was regularly, actively, you know, f- f- presenting fraudulent numbers with things like orders and gross merchandise volume and and merchant figures and that kind of stuff. Uh, and I've I've read his reports. Um, I've clicked on the links uh, and 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 looked at the supposed evidence um, that that he's presented. And honestly, I I don't see anything that he shows as evidence to support the the, the fraud that he's. He's talked about. Um, you know, I haven't heard a single regulatory agency that's that's gone after uh, the company or announced any investigations. That doesn't mean that it's not happening, um, but there's just nothing there um, that I've that I've seen to really support it. Uh, he's heavily featured uh, tweets uh, from an African entrepreneur named uh, Rebecca Enon Chong. So hopefully, I'm pronouncing her last name right. Enon Chong. Uh, he's She's she's had some pretty unfavorable things to say about the company, um, and some of her her tweets are, you know, basically saying, "Hey, you know, this this research report says that it's a fraud." I agree. Um, she she apparently was uh, a property owner and uh, was a landlord for Jumia um, a number you know, a few years ago. Um, she's never been you know involved in the company anything anything more than just as as a landlord, uh, but honestly, as uh, looking at her tweets and reading it, um, everything that I've seen is that it seems to be, from my perspective, that her motivations seem to be more that she's very pro-African business, uh, and Jumia is a German company. It was founded by Europeans. It's not headquartered in Africa. Um, most of its high-level employees, uh, they're engineers. Uh, they're based in Europe. 
Um, and the employees that they have in Africa are people that work in warehouses and do product delivery and that kind of thing. Uh, and to paraphrase what she has, has said is, is that she doesn't want this to be the media if the company fails reporting African e-commerce company fails, but she wants it to be German e-commerce company fails, fails in Africa. So again, all that to say, I don't really think that the risk of it being a fraud is the thing I'm really worried about. The bigger risk, and it's a legitimate risk, is that it simply fails to build a successful business in the markets it's targeting and you know continues to burn through cash without really establishing itself. Yeah, I, I will tack on to that, that this will probably be a business that goes through some of the lumps that Mercado Libre goes through, where you are working in several different countries, several different currencies, and as those individual economies get hit or experience growth, you're going to experience issues with the reporting that you do if you're bringing it all back into one central currency, in their case, euros. Um, I was talking with uh, Danny Vena about Mercado Libre. He's a fool that's been following that business forever. And he said, the reality is you just need to expect this company to sell off about 40% once a year. And (laughs) (laughs) it'll also grow considerably, and it's been a great stock to own. But because there are these huge lumps in you know all these different economies, and you are always bringing money back to one central currency, you're going to have some um, exchange rate issues with that. Yeah, I think I think in addition, also as we've seen with Ricardo Libre, you know, in you know Latin America and South America, uh, I mean, there's legitimate geopolitical risk too, right? You know, Africa has had its share of 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 coups and. Uh, you know, e- economic struggles that come out of political strife uh, in in many of the countries there, and I think for the most part, the, the places that it's chosen to do business are relatively stable economies. They're they're growing pretty well, um, but again, these are things that whether they're reality or just the market's perception, they're going to play a role in in how the stock responds over time. And I think the key thing is you have to acknowledge those risks, and you have to. Except the fact that this is this is definitely a higher risk stock, uh, you know, on the spectrum, simply because it burns more cash than it brings in, and it c- it could not stop all of its investing and growing its business, and say, okay, well, we can be stable now if we just cut our investments because that its business isn't big enough at that point. It has to keep spending just to get to a scale to even be s- sustainable, and it's not at that point. So that that by its definition makes it a high risk investment. Yeah, as is, it is not a business that you want to own. You want to own the future business. Unfortunately, you got to pay a ticket to the show now if you want to see the show later, right, Jason? Yeah, yep. <laughs> I hate, I hate the the. I, it's the it's a. I hate this cliche. The you know it's the it's the it's the cost of doing business or it's the it's the price of admission. But it's true. You know, you you have to be you have to be willing to to take on that risk if if you if you want you know. <laughs> If you if you if you want to own Amazon that's worth eighteen hundred nineteen hundred dollars a share, and and is a you know twenty thousand percent gainer for you, you had to buy it in two thousand two or ninety seven when it was burning more cash than it was bringing in. So that's just that's the reality of these kind. Of, if you have to take on that risk if you go if you want to get the upside. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show was you are a Jumia shareholder. And I was kind of interested to check in with you on how you feel. In some ways, I'm reminded a little bit of the crazy ascent 
that IGE had shortly after going public and the sell-off that happened immediately after that hype wore off. That's a little bit of what we've seen here. I think the stock doubled, maybe even tripled from IPO price, and we are down now about to where it debuted. How are you feeling as a shareholder? Yeah, it's it's you know, it's about the business, I essentially feel the same way I did when I when I first invested. I, you know, I feel I feel confident that they're the, the management's doing the right things. They're investing in, in delivering growth. Uh, I do have a regret, and the regret that I have is not taking the advice that I'm going to give anybody that's listening on this show, and that's simply that I, I invested too much too quickly. You know, I have a pretty sizable position; it's down about half. Uh, because I just bought a ton in the first you know month or so after IPO, uh, and didn't give the business time to play out before I gradually put more. Now, with that said, you know I'm 42. I'm going to be buying more of this stock. I'll probably buy more before the end of the year because I'm regularly putting more money in. Um, but you know this is this is. This is a business that's it's I'm not again like you said you're not you're not buying the business today you're buying the business that it's going to become and you know I think any investor who's got a decade or more to let it run and can take on the risk that this is not the next pets.com anybody that was around during the you know the dot com uh, bust back in you know the early 2000s remembers pets.com um, if you can take on the risk that that that, that it is the next pets.com and it's not Mercado Libre um, in other words, you, you take on that risk that you lose, you know, however much you put into it, you know, consider buying. But again, that's that's where this is where diversification comes in, right? Um, you is uh, Tom Engel, uh, who is a longtime uh, friend of the fool, has said on the message boards a lot of times. This is this is the kind of stock that if it works out, you don't need much. Uh, if it doesn't, you don't want much. So start small. Yeah, if, I'm curious, Jason. Um, I have my own tricks for kind of curbing my enthusiasm when it comes to a stock I'm excited about. I um, I tend to buy my positions in third or fourths, and I commit to not buying within about a month of each buy. So, I kind of have to pace myself out a little bit. And so, you know, maybe a little earlier than I want to, sometimes I'll buy that first slug just as kind of a tracking position to see what's going on, make sure I'm kind of keeping up with what's going on in the business. And then over time, I'll add opportunistically after I see some more earnings reports and things like that. Do you have any guidance out there for people that might be interested in doing something similar and avoiding kind of going all in at once? Yeah, I think I think one good thing to do is, you know, if you really like a company and you've done your initial due diligence and you're ready to invest, start yeah, like I said, start small. Some people buy in thirds, you know. And again, it depends on where what stage you are in in life. If you're a young investor who's going to be, you know, buying stocks, new stocks for the next 25 or 30 years, you know, you you could be buying every year, right? It might be a company that you target to do that with. But my general suggestion is a good way to do it is to take that initial bite and then wait for one or maybe even two earnings periods to go by. Not just to look at the results and the trends and see where it's going, but also to get some idea of what management has to say. Are they starting to change their tune and, and start giving more excuses about the results? Uh, or are they sticking to their guns and saying, this is what's working, this is where we're going to continue to invest? So, so, those, so you can kind of get a feel for what management is saying as well as what the company is doing. Um, and then once you understand the, the, the business trends, then you can kind of start looking at the stock price and say, well, I see the business is doing this and the stock's fallen by half. 
you know, the thesis still holds. Now is just a better opportunity to buy. Okay, now I can buy. So you, by focusing on the business first, you kind of force yourself to be a little more disciplined to follow the business and not the ticker price. And that's a much, much healthier relationship to have with your stocks. You know, that, that, that's kind of my, my basic thesis for most of, my, most of my investments is I focus on the business and then I look at the stock price and it's just a little bit, little bit easier to, to kind of hang in there if things aren't going well or to avoid selling a stock that's gone way up just because it's gone up if you understand the business is just getting started. So to sum all that up, you are holding your shares and probably will be buying more over time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's. I think I would go from from probably to very likely to buy shares before the end of the year. Okay, and for me, especially now that it's down to IPO price, I am far more interested, and it is near the top of my watch list. It's a it's a business that's very interesting. I would like to see some of the fraudulent cloud hanging over it um, clear up, but I'm willing to have <laughs> a small position in the company um, as a tracking position to start. I'm going to throw one more thing in there about that, the fraud and, and all that kind of thing. The interesting thing is if you look at short interest, I think at the peak, uh, less than 10% of shares were held short. And I think at the most recent report, it's like 6.5, 6.8% of shares. Now, that's still a large amount, but this isn't the 10, 15, 20% or more of shares held short that other Citroen research reports have generated. I don't know that the market is really completely buying uh, the, 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 the fraud story. So, I think that one might have already kind of answered itself to a certain extent. All right. Well, we'll see in the coming months. Thanks so much for hopping on today's show, Jason. Absolutely. Always fun. Let's do it again sometime. Let's do it again. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com, or you can tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out videos from the podcast on YouTube. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. For Jason Hall, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!